I see my picture here along with Adyashanti and Rupert Spira and Pamela Wilson and Gangaji and all these people. And, you know, I feel like, I hope you have no illusions that I'm some kind of a spiritual teacher or <laughs> luminary or anything like that. I don't purport to be. But I do feel like I have a role that I'm well-suited for and have spent most of my life preparing for, not knowing that I was preparing for it, but I somehow stumbled into it, and um, it has been very fulfilling for me, and uh, it seems to be beneficial for a lot of people. I was just down at the Science and Non-Duality Conference, and I, I couldn't walk ten steps without somebody coming up to me and say, saying, you, you know, this your show has had such an effect on my life you know I I made all kinds of stories someone one person said this thing was happening to me I had no idea what it was and I did some searches on the internet and and I began to find out about this awakening thing enlightenment thing and and then I started checking out different teachers and so it all began to make sense to me and I realized I wasn't going crazy and things like that and other people you know that well you, you connected me by a teacher I never would have known about so and so and um, so I really it's very gratifying to have that sort of effect. I used to be a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he once told me that I was a connector and a collector. So I feel like I'm kind of doing that in a way. And it's it's funny because at the same time, I, I feel like I'm not doing it. And I know that sounds like a spiritual cliche, but once in a while I'll be looking at the website or something at all these hundreds of names of people that I've interviewed and think... And I think, how in the heck is this happening? I don't even feel like I'm doing anything. I'm just kind of going along from day to day, and this thing is happening somehow out of it. And it's having all these ripples of effect all all over the world. So I really do kind of feel like an, an instrument or a tool of the divine. And, uh, it's very gratifying to do that, to be that. As I said, I just came from the Science and Non-Duality Conference, and I always go to that conference. I'm interested in the interface of science and spirituality. I'm not a scientist, but I'd like to talk about some thoughts that I play with all the time and have played with over the years and continue to refine as I think about them and talk about them with people. The theme of the Science and Non-Duality Conference this year was on the edge of the unknown. So I thought about that, and I thought, will will the unknown always have an edge? Or will we somehow reach an end point in which we actually do know everything? (laughs) There are actually scientists who feel that at a certain point, science is going to have it all figured out. And most people who feel that way already feel that um, spirituality and mysticism and all that has been rendered obsolete by science um, and that that the tools of objective science are going to answer all the questions. Now, I I don't think most scientists feel that way, but there are some. I think even Stephen Hawking and, um, what was his name, Leonard Mladno or something like that, wrote a book um, and uh, along those lines and sort of announcing that um, science had finally already displaced all the religious myths of creation and we didn't need those anymore. So there's a certain... Science is notorious for having a certain arrogance, you know, about how advanced we are and how much we know. And yet look at what's happening to the world. 
we've gained a lot of technological knowledge and there's a very real possibility that um, human beings won't exist in a couple hundred years if things go the way they seem to be going. Um, so obviously we don't know everything. There must be something more we could know that <laughs> could um, allow our technologies to be more benign and uh, allow them to benefit us without destroying us. <clears throat> and I think that's where spirituality comes in. Science without spirituality, it's, it's sort of like, you know, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. There isn't necessarily any kind of moral or ethical compass uh, for technology. Uh, very powerful technologies can end up in the hands of uh, people who are very greedy or small-minded um, and who really don't care about the consequences of what they're doing, who are basically looking at the bottom line of the next quarter and aren't thinking about the next generation or seven generations or anything like that, uh, and who treat, who, who regard nature in a very mechanistic way. The earth is an object, and it's here for us to exploit. And one way of thinking about that is that science, scientific and technological advancements utilize certain laws of nature. We discover uh, a law or a principle, um, even the way a jet plane flies. I mean, the, people studied birds for a long time trying to figure out how they did it. And you, you've seen those old films of early airplanes where they had things that flapped up and down and bounced all over the place and didn't get anywhere. But they eventually figured out the, the principle of the, the differentiation of the air pressure over a wing if the wing is shaped in a certain way and how that created lift. And so they understood something about some law of nature and that provided a, a valuable technology. But there are innumerable laws of nature and very often technologies harness or, uh, or meddle with certain laws of nature without really knowing the ramifications of that, without really knowing the implications of what we might do if we tinker with this or tinker with that. And often there are disastrous consequences. I mean, genetic engineering is a potentially disastrous thing where we're monkeying around at the level of the genome and we, we, you know, we, we don't really know exactly what effect we're going to have. But, and again, there's a, the, the financial incentive uh, to do this thing and a lot of money has been invested in research and so they want to get the product out there to, to recoup their investment. Uh, but it's, it's dangerous because we don't harness the, um, the intelligence of nature. Rather, we're meddling with it. And I would suggest there's a, there's a verse from Rig Veda which goes, um, Richo akshare parame vyoman yasmin veda yasmin deva adivishve nishedu. And it goes on a bit more. But what it says basically is that all the, the impulses of intelligence which um, give rise to and govern the manifest universe. In other words, we could say laws of nature, because I think nature, the laws of nature are not just mechanistic and dumb. They're actually impulses of intelligence, governed by intelligence. All those laws of nature reside, says this verse, in the transcendental akasha, in the transcendental field. And then it goes on to say that if, if you don't know that field, then what can those impulses of intelligence do for you? What can those laws do for you? Um, but if you do know that field, <clears throat> then you you come into alignment with natural law, with all the laws of nature, and you you function in such a way as to not 
create harm unwittingly by you know doing a specific thing and then and then unknowingly um, violating other things. I, I think people who are deeply attuned to the transcendent to their to their true nature have found that in their personal lives this is very often the case that you move much more gently and and sensitively in the world um, much more wisely you don't blunder about you know creating problems for yourselves and uh, for yourself and others and um, we can envision the potential of a the possibility of a society in which everyone was functioning that way and I think that if we had such a society uh, we wouldn't have so many problems by a long shot you know so many I would posit that every problem that besets us as a society is the reflection of um, the collective consciousness of all the individuals in the world. And if most of the individuals in the world have sort of incoherent, very partial grasp of, of the totality, then their collective influence is going to be, you know, to some extent positive, to some extent negative. And you can kind of gauge by the degree of harmful or positive technologies and, and situations with the environment and all that, how the collective consciousness fares at the moment. It, it could definitely use some upliftment. You may have heard that just in the last week or two, um, it was announced that through the use of the Hubble telescope, um, it has been determined that there are about 10 times more galaxies in the known universe than we realized. It used to, used to be hundreds of billions, now it's about 2 trillion or something. Uh, and that's just the known universe. And according to both physicists and, and some ancient cosmologies, there may be innumerable universes. But let's just stick with one. If there are 2 trillion galaxies in the known universe, and if there are, um, is a, a spiritually or technologically or both advanced civilization in, in each of those universes, only one. That would be two trillion such civilizations. But, you know, we know from the Kepler telescope that, at least in our neighborhood, most stars have planets around them, uh, it seems. And my hunch is that the universe is teeming with life uh, of all sorts and that there are uncountable civilizations that are far more advanced than ours, um, both technologically and spiritually. Um, so I think that's just a good thought to ponder because there, there tends to be a bit of hubris <clears throat> both in scientific and spiritual circles about how much we know and how advanced we are and so on. Um, I think it's kind of good to stay humble. Um, and some of, the, some of the teachers, the spiritual teachers I respect most, um, talk that way themselves, like Adyashanti, for instance. He's, he's, I'm always a beginner. I just had a nice interview with him yesterday um, that I'll be posting pretty soon. And he was saying, you know, hundred, couple hundred years from now, they might look, and if they remember me at all, they might say, boy, that guy was a real, you know, duffer. And he, he, he hardly knew anything. <laughs> but, and, you know, it might be that the, the average man on the street is as wise as, as the type of people we now consider to be spiritual luminaries, so to speak. All right, that was a little bit of an aside, but I just wanted to throw that out there. I'd like to speak for a minute about how um, science and spirituality might help each other. I spoke a bit about how spirituality might help science. If, if spirituality, in fact, is capable of 
attuning people more deeply to the, to the nature's intelligence, uh, if it's capable of um, enlivening um, moral or ethical values in people, making them more sensitive, more caring, more loving, things like that, um, then I think that that could you know, make these powerful tools that technology has given us, um, it would put them in safer hands. But let's do it the other way around. How can, how can science help spirituality? I think it's really important that my, my, when I use the word spirituality, I, I'm not implying faith or belief or anything of that nature. I'm talking about experience. And I think most of you probably have that orientation, shown, you know, given the teachers I see on this flyer here. We're not satisfied with being told that something is such and such and then just spending our lives believing that and hoping that that will do us any good. We probably, we may not have thought of it this way, but most of us probably regard the, the, the so-called faith statements of spiritual traditions as working hypotheses that we might test. You know, if, if the Upanishads say something about the ultimate nature of reality or, you know, some Buddhist scriptures or Christian scriptures or something else, we want to experience that. I don't think that Jesus or Buddha or any of those great teachers really cared what we believed, even though they're often translated as saying that. They cared what we experienced. They wanted us to experience what they were experiencing. And they did their best to say things that would uh, you know, align people with their and provide practices and teachings and so on that would enable people to do that. Those practices tended, you know, many of them I think, tended to have a scientific uh, um, nature to them. You know, a, a teacher would say, well, there's this, that, and the other. He might say, for instance, there's a transcendental field and it's deep within you and you could access it. Now, here's a technique. Check it out. Try it. See if it works. See if you do find that. And then the students might say, yeah, well, I had this experience. And then the teacher might say something to clarify their experience. So the point here is that it's really healthy to observe and to question and, and hypothesize and experiment and analyze and before reaching conclusions. Those are the, the basic steps of science. And spirituality, if we include religion in the word spirituality, has really not had that kind of attitude for most of its you know, historical existence. I mean, hundreds of millions of people have been killed and, and tortured in the name of what really actually represents the most sublime experience a human being can have. Uh, but it's been so distorted and misunderstood and, and so entrenched in dogma and rigidity that people have been killing them, each other over these things. I think that you know these, the founders of most religions would be rolling in the graves uh, if they saw what ended up happening to their teachings. I think understanding is really important on the spiritual path for a couple of different reasons. One is that it's a motivator. It's, an, it's inspiring. If, if we actually understood what the possibilities were, we'd be very excited about realizing those possibilities. When you drive around the city here, you see a lot of people walking around for whom life seems very difficult, rather bleak. And 
when you look at the news, you know, there are hundreds of millions of people in the world who are having a really tough time of it, who probably think that life is meaningless, it's a struggle, it's, it's suffering, it's life sucks then you die, is the saying. I think that's, it's a shame, because I think that we're, in a sense, we're all like multimillionaires who've forgotten that we have a bank account with all that wealth in it, and we're just sort of pinching pennies and begging on street corners trying to get by. But um, if we had access to our bank account, so to speak, well, even, even if somebody came and told us about the bank account, most, most wouldn't believe it. They'd say, well... I don't know, my life's really tough and this bank account seems rather um, you know, far-fetched and far away. But if a means could be provided to people to enable them to access the tremendous wealth of, of energy, intelligence, creativity, happiness, satchitananda that lie within them, then they could begin to bring that forth and sure enough, you know, the, their lives would improve. So somehow or other, I, I hope that the the knowledge um, and it's happening that the knowledge that there's more to life than meets the eye and uh, is is proliferating and more and more people are you know becoming inspired to discover it and to wake up that's definitely happening so that's one reason it's a, it's a motivator the Upanishads state that all happiness that we derive from any external experience is actually just a reflection of inner happiness. Just as the, the light of the moon is a reflection of the light of the sun. So you could, in, in a sense, if that's true, you could say that everybody's chasing enlightenment. Whether you know they're going after the new car or the new job or the, the new relationship or whatever they're looking for. They're looking for happiness. They're looking for fulfillment. And um, according to the Upanishads and many other scriptures, Ultimately, fulfillment is found is found in sort of oceanic amounts at the very core of our existence, the very core of our being. Now, that is not to say that we should just ignore or lose interest in in external pursuits, but if uh, if that inner happiness can be really discovered and experienced and stabilized in our awareness then it's, it can be tremendously enriching to all of our outer experiences. Whatever you're doing can be so much more enjoyable. I mean, think of a relationship, for instance. Um, you know, relationships can uh, be very difficult and um, can sort of lose their luster and, and there can be all sorts of problems and people are sort of full of, you know, stress and pent-up frustrations and so on that, that, you know, kind of ruin the potential enjoyment of the relationship. But if, if that stuff could be worked out if, and if, if people could realize experientially that they're actually one with one another at the most fundamental level, then a, a deep level of harmony could characterize the relationship that is kind of rare in most relationships. So that's just one example. There, there are many more. Another reason I think knowledge of the path or knowledge of the spiritual landscape is uh, important, and I'll elaborate a bit more on what I mean by knowledge in a bit, is that so many weird things have come down in the name of spirituality, both throughout history and 
contemporarily there there are just there have been so many cults and strange uh, situations that people have gotten involved in in which they've wasted money and time and suffered all kinds of heartbreaks and difficulties and you know so many spiritual teachers or have appeared to be very inspiring and worthy of of our attention and then have crashed and burned in one way or another um, and disillusioned a lot of people, perhaps hurt a lot of people in the process. So I think if uh, we had, we as individuals and we as a, a, a spiritual, larger spiritual community, had a clearer understanding of what awakening really looks like, so to speak, we, as the Who said, we won't get fooled again. You know, there will be a greater sort of discernment in choosing a teacher, choosing a path, not staying with someone who's abusive or trying to take all your money or trying to take you to bed or whatever else these teachers have, have tried to do, and many of whom have given spirituality a bad name in a way. So it safeguards the path. What is it that you mean when you say awakening and spirituality? I came in a little late. Maybe Good I didn't. question. My understanding is, and, I, and that's a very good question, because I hear, I hear so many people say, well, I had my awakening, and, uh, you know, or I woke in 19-whatever. And, um, and I, I, I often wonder what they're talking about. Or they say, are you awake? You know, um, And uh, different traditions approach this differently. I, I've, I've heard you know, Zen monks say, well, I've had many awakenings, some minor, some major. So, some some see it, seem to see it as a watershed moment. You know that you cross, and and it's like breaking the sound barrier or some barrier or something. And once you're on the other side, it's it's completely different. And that may be many people's experience. Others, it's a progressive thing that there are stages and stages and stages and stages. And maybe both are true. But my sense of it is that there is. I mean, we can draw the line and, and define the term however we want. But the way I would customarily use it is that um, you know we do have uh, a sort of a true nature we could say pure awareness we, we usually re- it's not we have it that's it's, it's, it gets tricky to talk about it but most people regard themselves as being their body and the things they're interested in and their politics they if you ask them who they are they begin to tell you what they like and where they work and that kind of stuff and that's really not our what we actually are we're we're something much more fundamental than that and the various scriptures and traditions describe it as being unbounded pure awareness that's not limited to any individual body much like the ocean whereas individual bodies might be more like the wave and most people feel like I am this wave, and I'm separate from that wave and all the other waves. And I'm vulnerable because the wind could blow me over and I could cease to exist or something, or I could crash up against the rocks and be gone. But um, what the traditions tell us is that, yeah, you're a wave, but more significantly and more fundamentally, you're the ocean which gives rise to all waves. And therefore, thereby, you are indestructible and eternal and... um, never-ending. There's a verse from the Bhagavad Gita which says, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. So, 
um, spirituality of the type I'm talking about, or awakening as I use the word, <clears throat> is with reference to awareness waking up to itself as that unbounded, fundamental, pure consciousness. Having talked to younger postdoc age scientists, it, I don't know if it's because they were raised by baby boomers, but mm-hmm. that divide, that hard, as if there is a line, doesn't, mm-hmm. they don't seem to be the old-fashioned scientists, I notice. They, they have a wider or a deeper or a different perspective, I've noticed. So that so, Which is what? That you can expand your perspective. To encompass your experience, your consciousness. And, mm-hmm. Great. You know, that there's not such the duality. That, yeah. So the scientists you speak about, I don't know, maybe it's generational or maybe Yeah, it's, it could be. I mean, you'll see with such heavy contrasts now in the politics, you know, you, um, there's a cultural thing like he's woke, she's woke, yeah. meaning... There's a certain consciousness, you know. Yeah. That's again, that's awakening where younger people and different cultures are using that term, meaning this awareness. Yeah. And I, I just find that sometimes <clears throat> the scientist label isn't what it used to. It doesn't define people that it used to. Yeah. So there's a couple of good points there. One, one is that it's not fair to paint all scientists with the same brush, and that it could be that. There's sort of a, it might there might be a generational thing where the the older folks are a little bit more stuck in their ways and younger people are more open-minded. It usually works that way. They someone I forget who said that science progresses by a series of funerals, because uh, <laughs> because c- c- people get so you know they're entrenched, they're stuck to their paradigms, and um, they're, they're they're resistant to change, and so they die off, and new paradigms you know come into vogue. And it might even be the feminine. Terms, that you know. too. Very important. Yeah, thing. absolutely. But another point that your question triggers in me is, is this, this sort of like, oh, he's awake, you know, or she, or she woke up or something like that. I get a little uncomfortable when people say that because I just don't know exactly what they're referring to. Mm-hmm. And, and that leads into a whole section of my talk that I'd like to... Um, it relates to this thing about knowledge. I think that it would be really valuable. You know, when Lewis and Clark uh, explored North America, they had a real fuzzy idea of what was out there. They didn't know what they were getting into and how big it was or where where certain mount- that there even were certain mountain ranges and things like that, and they had all sorts of difficulties because of that lack of knowledge. Um, these days, of course, with satellite technology and everything else, we have the whole continent the whole world mapped out to the centimeter probably uh, and you know gps gets us exactly where we want to go i think that um using the map metaphor uh it would be really valuable and i think this will be a project of hundreds of years if not thousands to have a clear map of the spiritual territory the the full range of of potential spiritual experience and it's almost silly to refer to as spiritual experience because we're really talking about understanding the the nature of reality uh in, in its 
in its depth. I mean, let me let me back up a second. When you say spiritual experience, to that to many people's minds, that denotes a kind of a a subjective thing. You have this inner bliss, or you have this vision, or something else, and um, there's no indication that what you're experiencing has any objective reality. It's kind of like um, if we were all sleeping and we were hooked up to the appropriate apparatus, um, scientists could tell if they were in the next room reading the meters that we were dreaming when we dreamt. They could tell, okay, now that person is dreaming. But they couldn't tell what we were dreaming. And uh, we could wake up and describe our dreams to them. But most of those dreams, and thus we give some uh, credence to the, the notion of you know, shamanistic visions or some kind of cognition or something that might sometimes happen in the dream state, most of those v- dreams are probably just sort of mental fabrications that don't have any, any uh, counterpart in the quote-unquote real world. But I feel that, that the spiritual quest is is not something to merely indulge in, in subjective experiences that may be gratifying, but it's actually an exploration of the full nature of reality. And the full nature of reality would include not only pure consciousness, which we were talking about a minute ago, you know, the ocean, but if we want to keep with the ocean metaphor, it would include the full depth of the ocean and all the fish that might live there <laughs> at different levels. So in other words, there... There is not only this sort of absolute foundation to things, which physicists might call the unified field, but there are many strata of creation, subtle to gross or gross to subtle. And many spiritual traditions have talked about these things. You can read books like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions. And um, I'm sure you could find references to this sort of thing in every tradition. I feel that it would be really valuable and a very, it would be, for starters, it would be a really interesting PhD thesis for someone to do, to take all the, the traditional maps and try to match them up and see where there's agreement and um, try to find out if they're, to take the ancient wisdom and see to what extent it can give us a sense of the, the, the full range of, of reality that spirituality is capable of exploring. But I think that won't be the end of it. I think, in a way, that'll just be the start. Um, and different... That is not to say that everybody's going to become kind of uniform in their uh, experience, We're all, or that they should. Um, I think we're all wired differently, and, and different people are going to um, have different cognitions and different different experiences. Even in the ancient Vedic rishis, uh, different ones would cognize different hymns of the Veda. They weren't, um, they weren't wired to cognize them all. This, this particular lineage would cognize this one, and this particular lineage would con- cognize that one. And it's kind of like if you take the map metaphor again, there are many maps of North America. There are weather maps. There are topographical maps. There are maps for aviation. There are maps of oil deposits, and there are road maps, obviously, maps of railroads. All these different things are are of the same territory. They all refer to the same territory, but they have sort of different purposes and are in different uses for different people, for different needs. 
<clears throat> so I, th I think that a, a really well mapped out, a, a really f mature map of, of the full, of the spiritual realm, which even that word is just too, too simple, but of the full nature of reality that human beings are capable of experiencing would have different variations and, and people would gravitate toward different aspects of it while still in agreement with and comfortable with the fact that others' experiences, although different than theirs, were equally valid. This person is qualified to experience this way. This person leans more toward that. But we're all feeling the same elephant. <laughs> you know that metaphor? Anyway, I'm rambling a bit. So any, any feedback on what I've said just now from anybody? Anand? Well, I, I just wanted to, you know, when we talk about Jesus and um, Buddha like they actually existed, I think the only one that's really kind of taken that on is Jack Cornfield. And when he gives what did he a, say? Well, when he gives a talk on, this is on the radio, not, not even a Dharma talk, he was uh -huh. talking about the Buddha myth of the mustard seed, the Buddha myth of this, the Buddha myth of that. That he didn't really exist? Yeah, hmm. yeah. Maybe Tim Freak talks about the you know has the Jesus myth book with uh, well, Peter Gandy that that Jesus didn't actually exist that it's just a sort of a a recurring um, mythology that that comes up in different cultures and and so on. Exactly, and also they went to the um, oh uh, in um, we don't want to get too hung up on this in the uh, Caesar's Christ. They went in and the what? Caesar's Christ as a book. Caesar's Christ. Yeah. yeah. And they decided, you know, they, the Caesars were the actual ones that created the Jesus myth because, mm. you know, it's very expensive to go all the way to Israel with all these troops and everything. So, you know, if you someone hits you, turn the other cheek. And, you know, if you walk, you know, a mile with a, a, a Roman asks you to walk a mile with his bag, walk another one and all. Yeah. It's all, you know, the whole okay. thing. You know? Anyway, I don't want to get hung up on yeah. that. Well, but, uh, I would say that even if it's true, and I'm I'm no scholar of that of mm -hmm. such things, even if it's true that some of these um, great historical figures were either, you know, totally fabricated or at least embellished the things they did, you know, right. there could have been a lot of exaggeration over time. Right. Um, we don't need to resort to ancient um, records to feel comfortable that um, spiritual enlightenment is uh, a possibility because there are contemporary examples, yeah. you know, in both recent and, and current times. Yeah. Well, if, if you say that, <clears throat> gee, you know, I realize I'm not doing this, you know, I've heard this from a lot of people mm -hmm. and... Um, Hopefully there, but anyway, this is more of a concept than anything. Anything, but there was this guy that died about two weeks ago where we live, and just before he died, he tried to kiss this woman and got in all kinds of trouble. And the police were involved and this and that, and then uh, that was like Tuesday and Wednesday, he got into a political argument, wanted to fight the guy, chose him out. And the guy, you know, backed down and said, no, you're my friend. I don't want to fight. And then on the next day, he was walking to a restaurant. And you're not he, talking about Donald Trump, are you? No, 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 no. no okay. No, 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 no. The next day, he died. 
Yeah. yeah. He leaned up against the pole and fell down. And my, my question was, I guess it's probably half, maybe half concept and not half. Anyway, was so Source was doing all those things? Okay, that's a good question. I can do something with that. There are people who say that, you know, there's no free will and everything is just genetics and conditioning. Ramesh Balsakar was said that over and over if you've, if you've heard of him. Um, I think that, like many things, uh, their truth is, is sort of multi-layered and there are different levels of reality which are true in their own right but paradoxically opposed to one another. Let, let me just give you an example. So uh, I get this model. Timothy Conway expresses this very clearly. He has written a nice article on it on his site, enlightenedspirituality.org. But um, he, he, he has what he calls the threefold three threefold paradoxically true levels of reality or something. The first one would be the gross, obvious level of the world that we're all familiar with, where there are problems and difficulties and this and that, and uh, you know we need to deal with those things on their own level. If there's pollution, we need to clean it up or stop contributing to it or whatever. You can't just ignore it. Um, a, a second level would be... Um, the divine level, where everything is God, everything is divinely orchestrated, everything is absolutely perfect just as it is, including the pollution. There's, there's no mistakes in the universe. It's all just running like clockwork. A, a, a deeper level would be the unmanifest level where nothing ever happened. There is no universe. Nothing ever arose. You've probably heard statements like that from Ramana Maharshi and others. Each of those is true, actually. Uh, it's just that knowledge is different at different levels of consciousness, different states of experience. And people tend to get stuck in one or the other of those levels. Uh, there might be people who are stuck on the level of, we've got to really do something about all the problems in the world and all this other stuff about, you know, everything's perfect and there is no, you know, it's just a lot of nonsense, it's not practical, it's not going to help us. There are people who, you know, I've heard people there was a uh, an interchange at the Science and Non-Duality Conference four or five years ago where uh, David Loy, who was a Buddhist teacher, got up and was challenging a speaker to say, what, what about environmental problems? And, and we need to do something. We need to you know, apply our spirituality in a practical way. And he was just saying, eh, whatever happens, it's all perfect just as it is. We don't need to do anything. And, and uh, you know, the world is a speck of dust if it disappears, whatever. You know. uh, <laughs> And then, you know, I've also heard people talk uh, that, you know, nothing ever happened. There is no universe. There is no person. There is no self. Each of those is true on its own level. But if you, if you get stuck in one or the other of those levels, it, it's lopsided. It doesn't, it doesn't do justice to the full range of possibilities. And I personally, I think that a, a mature spirituality is uh, an embodiment of the full range of creation, in, in living, in, in a living life. The, the word Brahman, which you may have heard, actually is defined as the inclusion of the, well, they talk of three levels, Adi, Adi Bhuta, Adi Daiva, and Adi Atma. That's the three levels I just described. And it, it includes all the, the full range of the relative and the absolute, all wrapped up in one big package. And that's, the totality. That's the reality. Not just this slice or this slice or this slice. Yeah, well, that, that sounds... Wow. 
Yeah, I went to this talk the other day, and, and he ended it with, there is no separate self, and that was sort of like a zinger. He was saying know? that in the talk, somebody? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at the very end of the talk. And uh, I thought, gee, no separate self, and then, you know, if they put something over my nose and mouth, I probably yeah. wouldn't be around for three minutes. You'd be struggling. You'd see. I'd be struggling, and, and, you know, the rain could have fallen, and, you know. Yeah. Three months ago, and, and I'm drinking it now, and that's in my blood. So I sort of get that a little bit. I don't know if it's a concept or not. But. Well, to my, to my level, to my understanding, well, my friend Francis Bennett has a nice phrase that he likes to repeat a lot. and I think it even has it on the homepage of his website. He says, of course you're a person. You're just not only a person, you know. <laughs> so, you know, on some level, yeah, there's no separate self. Very true. Put your hand on a stove, and very quickly there's a felt sense that there's a separate self. At least most of us would feel that way. And that separate self doesn't like the pain that it's experiencing and wants to do something about it. Um, and now, some people have the experience, if they're deeply grounded in, in the capital S self, in, in true nature, that you know, they experience the pain and yet they don't experience it at the same time. There's a, there's a dimension in their experience which is beyond the reach of pain. I was a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi for a long time, and he was once doing an interview with, uh, on the BBC with an interviewer named Malcolm Muggeridge, and, and Maharishi and the abbot of Downside were, were in this discussion with Malcolm Muggeridge. And Maharishi liked to shake people up. So he said during some, at some point during this interview, Christ never suffered. And of course, the Adam, both Muggeridge and the Abbot of Downside got a little unnerved by that statement. Um, but he went on to explain that he appeared to be suffering, and obviously his body was going through something rather nasty, and there must have been pain and so on. But if he was really Christ, if he was really what he was cracked up to be, then the predominant subjective experience he must he must have been so well established in in the in being that he was untouched he, that's the world in which he dwelt primarily there's there's a phrase in um, in vedanta which go, which is called lesha vidya which means faint remains of ignorance and it's said that there needs to be some lesha vidya some faint remains of ignorance in order to function as a human being and that if not if not for that I mean you think of Ramana Maharshi in the cave or in the pit beneath the temple where he was being chewed by insects and so on and would have died if someone hadn't dragged him out of there and cleaned him up <laughs> maybe he was at a stage at that point where he, he was just so you know beyond the world that he was oblivious to his body but he, you know, he came out of there, and he spent years in in a cave meditating and whatnot, and eventually came out and started speaking and teaching. And yet, on his when he was close to death, and he, you know, he was suffering from cancer and and actually screaming in pain at times. You know, people would ask him about what he was experiencing, and he made it very clear that uh, although it appeared that he was suffering, he was really untouched by it. And and they said, you know, please don't die, please don't leave us. Where could I go? You know? So there's this kind of... You've got to take any statement that somebody says like that and bring it back to this multidimensional kind of perspective where it's not just this or that, excuse me, it's both and. And uh, the, whole, the whole gamut 
And uh, don't take your stand. Here's a quote from the Bible. Jesus said, For the birds have their nests and the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And to me that means you don't take a fixed stance. You know, there's no place to land. There's, there's just sort of this openness, uh, way, lack of certainty, which is much more secure than taking a fixed stand and saying it's this way. Because it's never just this way. There's always the paradox and the ambiguity. So just to reiterate, I think spiritual evolution is a is a process of more and more inclusion, more and more expansion of the circumference of our awareness of our experience to include all the all the sort of diverse diverse and paradoxical uh, realities of existence within a a totality that's capable of harmonizing them all. Um, and I really don't think there's any end to it. I was. I was speaking to a, a friend and a spiritual teacher down at the SAND conference. It's the first time we'd met in person. We'd been in touch for years. I interviewed him years ago, and we'd been exchanging political emails and other things ever since. And I, was, I, I mentioned this idea of there possibly not being any end to spiritual evolution. And it just goes on and on. And he said, well, I feel like I've, I'm finished. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm complete. And I said, Really? said, well, if we went back to the way you were experiencing things 10 years ago, if you could remember that, and can contrast that with the way you were experiencing things right now, would there be any difference whatsoever? And he said, well, yeah, um, but you're talking about the, the manifest. I'm talking about the, the you know, my pu- true nature, the absolute value. And I said, well, of course, that doesn't change. And you know, we'd be in big trouble if it did. Um, um, but the degree to which uh, pure, true nature can be um, integrated into uh, the relative, our relative life, to my mind, has no end. And there's no, think of the, the various faculties we have as human beings. We have, you know, senses. We have an intellect. We have a heart. Um, there have been some very brilliant intellects in this world. There have been some very um, huge hearts, you know, incredibly compassionate people. There have been people with very, very refined senses, uh, perceptual capabilities. So there's the potential to refine all of our faculties more and more and more. And I see that as kind of a, you know, if we feel we've landed in in the self and, and that it's never going to change, then there's a kind of a coming back and an, uh, an, an infusion of that into our relative life. I was having a discussion about this topic again just the other day and, and someone was saying, it might have been Adya, was saying that you can, you know, there have been people who've sort of woken up to their true nature but have been real jerks, um, you know, really very poor in relating to people or dishonest in business relationships or, you know, things like that. And obviously there's some room for improvement. There's some room for enhancement. 
a, fr- a friend of mine was debating me on this point, saying that, well, um, you know, spiritual awakening, awakening has nothing to do with behavior. You can be a jerk and and be enlightened. You're just going to be an enlightened jerk. Um, <laughs> and I, I beg to differ. I think that um, there's there's a correlation. There's a correlation. It may be a, a loose correlation, like a big stretchy rubber band. It's not like if you're awake to the self, you're just going to be a saint, like that. Uh, but I think that it has an influence. And in fact, Adi was saying, if, even over the ca- past couple of years, he feels like he can feel changes taking place in his brain and his his sort of way of functioning. Um, so it's kind of like when when the self is realized, it starts working on the vehicle in which it has been realized and keeps refining that vehicle. Um, if you want to think of it in more sort of um, spiritual or, or uh, godly terms... The, the pure consciousness or pure true nature or self-realization as it's often described usually doesn't have much of a divine connotation. It's more It more sounds like a plain vanilla kind of awareness that you realize. and um, But there's no mention or, or suggestion of the vast intelligence that is permeating all of creation. And... I'm I'm very comfortable with using the word God, although it um, it's a very misunderstood word, and it's kind of hard to use because people have so many connotations and perhaps even traumatic associations with it from the, their upbringing. But if we define it as the the intelligence which so obviously permeates and orchestrates every iota of creation. Boy, I've got several thoughts here I want to develop. Let me um, let me illustrate that just for a minute, and uh, hopefully I'll come around and wrap up all these points. There are more um, stars in the gal in in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches in the world, and there are more atoms in a single grain of sand than there are stars in the universe. And each one of those atoms is a perfectly functioning little thing that we're st- we still don't understand. And it's obviously not, it obviously hasn't come into existence through some kind of random billiard ball effect of, you know, there, there's, there's intelligence, to my understanding and others. There's in- intelligence. There are... And, intelligent laws of nature, orderly laws of nature, orchestrating it and orchestrating it in coordination with all the other trillions of atoms in that grain of sand. And that's just a grain of sand. Go out from there, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger out to the whole universe. You can't find any spot in the entire universe, any cubic centimeter, which if you analyzed it closely, you would not see some sort of amazing phenomena that defy our understanding and that illustrate or that display vast intelligence. You could take a cubic centimeter way out in the middle of empty space someplace and even there, there are gamma rays going through and light, you know, photons and and so on and all kinds of laws of nature. So to me, with, with that kind of thinking, 
it, it seems that God is hiding in plain sight. And that I talked in the beginning about science helping spirituality. I think science has given us a much clearer and deeper understanding of just how marvelous the creation is and just how amazing God is. There's a beautiful quote from Carl Sagan where he says that, you know, hardly for some reason hardly any spiritual tradition has looked at the findings of modern science and said, wow, the universe is even more marvelous than we thought, more sublime, more you know, more subtle, more beautiful. Instead, they usually, most people usually say, oh, no, 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 you know, our God is a little God and we want him to stay that way, you know, and <laughs> we reject these findings of science and so on. But to my view, science has, and that's why this whole science and spirituality thing fascinates me, it has kind of opened a window into the divine which um, hundreds and thousands of years ago we didn't really have accessible. It's given us a a, a deeper uh, appreciation, or the potential for one, of just how profound the the intelligence governing things actually is. All right, now if if that divine intelligence permeates all of creation as I've just described then it obviously permeates us too someone once said God may be omnipotent but the one thing he can't do is remove himself from your heart and if he permeates us and if he permeates everything and I say he excuse me for saying that you know what I mean then there really is nowhere that God cannot be found. And again, by God, I mean this, this all-pervading intelligence that we see evidence of if we look closely enough, but which we kind of take for granted and walk through our days not, not realizing the, what a miracle it is that we're actually participating in. There is no place where that, in, that intelligence cannot be found. Uh, look anywhere, look closely enough, there it is. So there, if that is the case, then there really is nothing other than that. If there seems to be something that's other than that, look closely, and oh, sure enough, there it is also. Now, someone might say, oh, I mean, did that really pervade Auschwitz? Or, you know, some, does it, prevail, does it pervade a pile of dog poop? Or, you know, something that's really not so enjoyable <laughs> but yeah if you look closely at least I mean look in the cell in the skin of a guard in Auschwitz and, and or a prisoner and sure enough that cell is more complicated than the city of Tokyo and you know operating according to principles which we hardly understand there's a miracle taking place in every iota of creation if if we have the eyes to see it now is does that miracle have an agenda? Does that intelligence have a, a, a purpose, or is it just sort of like playing dice with the universe? And and you know, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly, and and it's not necessarily going anywhere. It's just sort of bouncing around, and there's suffering here and happiness there, and and so on. 
I would say that there is a sort of an evolutionary trajectory or force or energy or intent that is part of that intelligence. And if there weren't, then I'd, I'd, I really don't know that we'd have a universe. I probably sound like a total fool right now to somebody who has a PhD in physics and you know has really studied this stuff scientifically. I'm, I'm coming at it from the perspective of a high school dropout who eventually kind of got his life together and, and moved on and devoted his, his life to spirituality and has thought about this stuff for many years. And I have a tremendous amount to learn and always will. I'm just kind of giving you, sharing some perspectives and things that interest and inspire me. Oh, do you have a question? Yes, please. Um, it, it seemed that that science says that the universe is expanding. Uh-huh. So if, if, if that's the case, it would seem that the intelligence has a kind of expanding trajectory. Yeah. So, so I, I sort of agree with you. And also it occurred, it, it just also occurred to me, not just occurred to me, but what I've thought about is if the universe were one bit negative, mm-hmm. it would immediately cease to exist. Yeah. It has to be somewhat positive. There's just a scientist named Robert Lanza who has this thing that I, he calls biocentrism. And he's written a book about it which I haven't read yet when I want to and I would like to interview him but basically he talked at Sand a number of years ago basically the point is and I think other scientists have made this true there are a whole lot of variables that if they were just one little weensy beansy bit off we wouldn't have a universe the Big Bang would, would have fizzled or any number of other things wouldn't have happened that had to happen in order for life as we know it to have appeared now, some say that, well, it's like the, the, the story of, you know, infinite number of monkeys pounding on typewriters coming, uh, and eventually coming out with Shakespeare, that there have been enough attempts. There are just sort of an infinite number of potential universes, and somehow we live in one where, you know, it just by chance came out right, and so we have it as it is. But... Again, I, I, I keep saying I would say, uh, who am I to say? It's just my opinion, <laughs> my hunch, my feeling that that it's not. There's no such thing as randomness, and that as you know, we we're talking about intelligence a few minutes ago. That even random things are permeated with intelligence, and and there if they're or laws of randomness, then the intelligence is responsible, that, that all permeating intelligence is responsible for those. And that there's a sort of an evolutionary drive that has given rise to the universe. And that creates greater and greater and greater complexity. And you know the whole story of how originally we just had hydrogen and helium and then the stars were formed and and eventually stars died and exploded and heavier elements were were created in the process of that and and we're all you know Johnny Mitchell's song Woodstock we're all stardust 
40 million billion year old carbon or whatever 14 billion all the heavy all, our bodies are completely made up of elements formed in exploding stars and yeah i kind of sense feel that the universe is one great big evolution machine and by evolution i mean developing the capacity for God, Brahman, the ultimate reality, to become a living reality. Because there's something more in that than there is in just unmanifest state. Um, it's like if you're lying in the bathtub, you've been lying there for a while, the water doesn't feel warm anymore. Slosh around a little bit and it, it gets more enjoyable. So there's... I mean, look at they use the word leela in Sanskrit, the, the play of creation. There seems to be something playful or creative in entertaining even in the, the whole marvelous universe that we see. Okay, talking too much. Question. Uh, along the lines of you know, what... Uh, might be the evolution of the universe and does God consciousness, uh, the all, all universal intelligence, is it guiding some evolution that we can know? Uh, you are an exceptional person in having studied the, the, the self-realizations of, of hundreds of people and spent hours with each of them, which is rather rare, and no one else I know of has ever done that. And it would seem that you might have a, a very strong sense of how humanity, uh, not just individuals waking up, but how could, as you've spoken to this about our species, could be part of this evolution and waking up as one mm -hmm. and none. <laughs> so with all those three levels integrated in each of us and so forth. What do you see as possibly the trajectory of, of the awakening of, or the enlightenment of, of, our, of the human species at this very pivotal time in human history? It's a good question. And again, it's just my opinion, but it's funny because a lot, everybody's talking about these questions. They, Somebody will ask a question or I'll start to make a point and I think, I just had a conversation about that the other day. People, this kind of stuff is in the air, you know, people are thinking about these things. I kind of see that the, th there seems to be some sort of epidemic of spiritual awakening taking place as far as I can tell. And that epidemic is being facilitated by technology, the internet, and so on. If... I, I kind of feel like the internet is not just sort of a, a technological breakthrough. It's There's a, a kind of a, a deeper, more cosmic or divine impetus for its, for its creation as a tool through which awakening can propagate. And it's critical that it do so because I feel that it's really the antidote to the potentially dire problems that confront us. I, I, as I was saying earlier, I think all problems are 
just um, expressions of the collective consciousness uh, of society. And collective consciousness means the aggregate of all the individual consciousnesses, if that's a word. And um, if we have problems on the obvious levels of life, it's because every single individual is either is contributing some influence, which taken collectively gives us these problems. It's kind of like if you have a forest and it's you fly over it in a plane and it's all gray and withered and dying. It's because every individual tree is gray and withered and dying. You'll see that if you get down into the forest and you see, well, this tree is dead and this tree is dead. But if you want the forest to be green, then you... You can't just work on the, uh, you can't spray paint it or, or work on some some broad uh, overall level which doesn't treat the health of each individual tree. Each tree has to be nourished and made more green uh, by being watered, perhaps by being by being enabled to draw forth the nourishment that is in the ground that it's rooted in, which it may somehow have lost contact with. So I kind of feel like, and hopefully I'm not deviating from your question, but I, I feel like um, there's, an, there's a kind of a welling up from the most fundamental level of life, uh, an awakening of consciousness. And I don't know whether that's being caused by human beings who are intentionally pursuing that or whether it's coming from the, from the side of consciousness, from the side of the divine, waking up from its slumber. And as it does so, people are just sort of beginning to awake from their slumber. I get contacted by people all the time who, you know, just somehow begin to pop and they, they had no interest in spirituality or they hadn't done any practices or anything else. But, you know, they start to um, have experiences and get into and they start to have kundalini things going on and whatnot and they don't know what it is. And they, uh, so there does, does seem to be this this epidemic of awakening and i think it's nature it's nature's intelligence trying to reset the imbalance that has become so dire and we've the pendulum has swung about as far as it can swing without you know really catastrophic consequences so it's time for it to swing back yeah so that wraps up the point i shouldn't keep talking yes Would you say that it is swinging back? That's your that that's yeah. that's the yeah. conclusion of that. I yeah. think so. Yeah, that's my feeling. And it may be that as it swings back, polarities will appear to be increasing. You know, there'll be greater tension in political races. There'll be greater violence here and there. But I think that maybe that's kind of like possibly. Um, a purificatory mechanism that, that things have to come to the surface in order to, you know, if there's a blood impurity or something, it has to come out as a boil and be lanced and, or popped or something. And then the, the blood impurity can be eliminated. There's a lot of stuff that's well, and also just in terms of greater truth, greater, more revelation. There's, there's a lot of stuff that's been hidden in the dark. That's, that's kind of coming to light more and more, more transparency. Yeah. So I, I really think that the more fundamental level on which you can operate, the more powerful it is. The molecular level is more powerful than the mechanical 
the atomic level is more powerful than, than the molecular. And consciousness is the, sort of the most fundamental level of all. And if, if consciousness is being enlivened, if we can operate from that level, uh, and if we can f- help to participate in the eli- enlivenment of consciousness, then we've got a real pivotal position where we can really affect change, doing less and accomplishing more. It may seem kind of like hopeless at times that there are all these powerful corporations and political entities and so on, and what can little old us do about them, and you can't even seem to vote to, to vote any kind of change to happen because the political system seems corrupt and so on. But I, I don't know. I, I kind of, maybe I'm naive, but I kind of feel like th- this upwelling of consciousness that seems to be taking place in society, it'll, it'll be a David and Goliath kind of situation where the the power structures won't be able to survive the phase transition as a, a more enlightened awareness dawns in, in humanity. If, if the power structures are corrupt and don't de- deserve to survive, maybe some of them aren't and, and should survive. Yes, Anand. This pendulum that kind of gets up mm-hmm. and then it's so out of whack that yeah. it has. I mean, if we think there's an intelligence that has no randomness and no accidents, mm-hmm. so even that has. Yeah, meaning. cycles are natural. Yeah, so it's, it's like maybe that's what's driving evolution. Things have to get a little out of whack yeah. to push to the next level. I, I'm just it could wondering. be. I mean, it does seem that in all phases of life, cycles are natural. There's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Lord Krishna says, when, when dharma is in decay and a dharma flourishes, I take birth. Which is not to say that Lord Krishna is going to show up anytime soon. But I, I think if we think of that as the divine intelligence welling up again in order to reestablish a balance once the um, uh, imbalance has reached its its sort of extreme possibility. I think it's the principle that was being stated there. Michael, if you have any thoughts as uh, as you sit there, just pipe in. My, Michael Rodriguez was going to... I invited him to sit next to me tonight and goad me because we had this great discussion in the car coming down today and and uh, I was going through some of these points, and he kept like coming in with all these really great questions and points that made me think of things I hadn't thought of and elaborate a lot more. And so I said, you've got to come on stage with me and just do that tonight. <laughs> but he got hung up somehow and didn't get here until a little while ago. But uh, feel free to pipe up if anything occurs to you. Okay. Yeah. So um, one Dharma teacher said that life and God are one and the same. Would you go along with that? That what? Life that and what? life and God are one and the same? Yeah, I would say that. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it doesn't matter what I say, but in my opinion. Um, well, that's helpful. <laughs> you seem like you're pretty I'm no sharp. kind of authority on anything, but um, in my, my way of seeing things, God is life and vice versa, and there is nothing but God ultimately. But you have to be careful when you say that not to fall into the trap of that levels thing that I was talking about. But... Still, if you if you think about it, if you think about what's what we're actually interacting with and what we actually are, but if you look closely enough, uh, if you boil it down to its essence, there, there's nothing but sort of 
this vast intelligence orchestrating every minuscule bit of of creation. Okay, and how, how about? Um, well, this was Adi Ashanti. He said that. Did he say that? No, 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 oh. no, I, no. He didn't say that. But this guy said he was. I was too chicken shit to go to India, mm-hmm. and because I was afraid to get hepatitis or mm-hmm. mevic dysentery and all that stuff. And he said that God has never made a mistake in the so-called past. He's never made a mistake in the the present, and he's never made a mistake in the in the so-called future. Yeah. And therefore, you go to India, and if you get hepatitis, it's not a mistake. Is that the? Uh, no, he just said, uh, "Don't worry about it. If you if you're all upset that you didn't go to India, God has never made a mistake. He probably didn't send him to India yeah. because he realized things were going to get you you get jacked up there or something. You know what I mean? Well, God helps those who help themselves, and and that's kind of that that's that three levels thing. On a certain level, everything is divine. You can go to India and get leprosy, and it's all perfect. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's not perfect on the level of the obvious mundane level of your life. Um, but just how about just the mistakes, though? Just no I don't mistakes? think there are any mistakes. I don't think mm. it's possible. What is a, Well, again, it's a levels thing. There's mm-hmm. a certain level on which there are no mistakes because everything is divine and, and perfect just as mm. it is. On an obvious level, you can make mistakes, and if you're and if you take recourse, and I've seen examples of people who use as an alibi the notion that everything is perfect, just as it is, right. to excuse egregious behavior. There's no mistakes. I'm being a, a jerk. I know, but you know, hey, <laughs> it's a, it's not me doing it. It's yeah, just, <laughs> exactly. So you just have to yeah. keep doing this thing where you. You don't land on any fixed position of it's only this or it's only that or it's only that. Um, it's a mistake. It's not a mistake. Nothing ever happened. All three. To echo back to what we were talking about, that um, as I understand it, 600 million years ago, we were our life was largely single cells, and mm-hmm. there was the Cambrian explosion, and here we are. Mm-hmm multicellular organisms because, uh, as my friend Bruce Lipton says, you know, the only way that cells could get any uh, larger was to collaborate and come together right. as a multicellular. So now we have each have about 50 trillion human cells and about nine times as many bacterial cells. So there's obviously been a lot of collaboration, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe that's what's going to happen with seven-plus billion humans that were cells that the earth and the universe created and and so what is it that cells realized and accomplished <laughs> that we're learning to accomplish and i, I really want to numbers or something. I, I want to i want to draw on your knowledge that was so unique of listening to learning from 300 people who have all awoken to this state of grace mm-hmm. uh, from many different pathways and different, you know, each in their own unique way. And so you've, you've availed yourself of that and gone out and made this incredible record of Buddha at the glass pump uh, from your, your passion and creativity and service. So how do you feel that we can actually share a transpersonal collective already unified uh, intelligence as a species? What does that look like? What, well, that's you know? a good question. 
And I, I, I don't know if I can do justice to the answer, but I can take a shot at it, and uh, I'm sure there could be wiser answers. I do think that there's... It's like, the, it's natural for life to be diverse, and we wouldn't want to eliminate diversity. And it, it almost seems like the more verdant and alive something is, like the rainforest, the more diverse it is, you know? So, diversity is good. But without a kind of a, an underlying unity to stitch it together, diversity is fragmented and at odds with itself very often. So, I think that as the underlying unity wells up more and more, it won't, it won't make a sort of a monolithic culture worldwide where we'll all eat the same thing and believe the same thing and dress the same way. I, I think uh, it may even result in a, a re-enlivenment or re-emergence of uh, ancient and traditional cultures which really had a lot of wisdom and a lot to offer, but which have been kind of, you know, suppressed or wiped out by, you know, the modern culture. So... I don't know if it's going to result in sort of like a merging of countries where we would eventually have sort of one world without separate countries. I don't know. But whether or not it does anything like that, I do think that there would be greater and greater harmony. The more the, the unified value of life pervades uh, the individual expressions of life, the more harmonized they will be with one another. Just like in, you know, in our own body, if, if there weren't some kind of organizing intelligence which coordinated all the, the bio, what is it called, the bios, biomes? biomes? Right. And, and, and all of our individual cells and organs and everything else, we would, wouldn't be able to function. There has to be, everything has to function in coordination with one another. And yet, a brain cell is not a liver cell and is not a skin cell and so on. We need the diversity in order to be a, a functioning unit. So I think that... Well, I guess I kind of answered it. I don't know if I need to elaborate anymore. If you take, like, um, a garden... Oh, I, I interviewed David Spangler uh, recently, who was one of the original directors of Findhorn. And um, that interview will be going up in a couple of days when I get home. Finhorn was this interesting place in Scotland where it was way up on the North Sea or something, a very inhospitable place near an air base, and it was established in a trailer park. And one half of the trailer park was um, occupied by people who worked at the air base, and the other half was this Finhorn community that started to develop. And the, the contrast was stark. The... the, the the airbase place was just all this sandy, um, you know, scrabbly um, soil and nothing much growing or anything else. The Finhorn was like this little garden of Eden with all these lush plants. And people even tested. There was one guy who was skeptical of it all and brought some roses that he knew couldn't survive in that environment and gave them to rose plants and gave them to the, the people at Finhorn. He came back a year later and these roses were thriving. And that made a believer out of him. And... The reason the whole thing worked is that it was founded by people who were in tune with all the subtle 
intelligences of nature, the devas and the fairies and so on that helped to rule the plant kingdom. And they worked in collaboration with those entities and made this really beautiful, lush thing in a very inhospitable place. So, you know, that could be a little bit of an example for what the world might become if we were more deeply attuned to nature's intelligence. And when I say nature's intelligence, I don't mean just the sort of universal intelligence that we kind of sense underlies everything. And, and we also see it, you know, pervading things. If we look at this glass on a microscopic level, we see all this sort of intelligent structure of things happening. But agencies, and Kristen Kirk will be speaking, well, she's going to be up in... Uh, San Rafael, but she has experiences like this all the time of these sort of subtler beings and subtler entities who, which are responsible for, which have roles to play, functions to play in the governance of the universe. Human beings can, can come to appreciate that and work in collaboration with that. So I, I kind of, I guess I'm saying here that in my estimation, an enlightened society be, a society be one in which we're actually not only harmonized with each other as human beings and with the animals and the, the plants and everything else that we ordinarily see in this world, but that the world is teeming with life beneath the surface, so to speak. If we regard the surface as the gross level of, of ordinary perception, there are subtle realms subtler and subtler and subtler realms. And there are more beings living in those subtler realms than there are in the gross level of, of the world. Some people are aware of them, some quite routinely. I have friends who just, if they were in this room right now, they would see angels and devas and so on. And these are very normal people. They're not like woo-woo cookie folks. It's just their normal everyday reality. That stuff exists. And it very much concerns and influences our human existence. Um, but most of us are oblivious to it. I, I kind of see an enlightened society in which, in, as one in which we have joined that subtler brotherhood in a collaborative way with tremendous benefit to all of us. They must be sort of shuddering and cringing all the time with the things that we do you know, to nature and so on. And if we were living in harmony and cooperation with them, we could really have like a global Findhorn situation. Hey, somebody new asking a question. I want to speak to the question that you just asked about sure. the cells and how cells can form to create greater, more complex organisms and what are we missing as humans to get that and the diversity. And I, it, I thought of cells aren't biased. Molecules don't have thoughts about what they should join with or they shouldn't. We have all these ideas and concepts about what is with and what is. Uh, well, science tears us apart. Our science denotes our spirituality. So, therefore, some version to the scientific institutions. Or, like you're mentioning, corporations, business, politics. We feel, oh, what can little old me do? They are terrible. They're destroying our environment. They're bad. And as, as spiritual folk, we tend to be more attuned to the subtle realms. You know, we, we, we ought to be more attuned to the spirits and those that we can't necessarily see with our eyes. But I feel like it's also important to embrace without 
bias the the bureaucracy and the corporations. And um, I have a group that I'm close to that is Buddhist, and um, there is an infiltration happening of big corporations. Yeah. And so we, for example, I have a friend who worked her way up the ranks in Facebook and started a Facebook compassion program as hmm. planting seeds of goodness in Facebook. So they do a suicide watch, and if people are flagged for being at, at suicide risk, especially mm-hmm. teenagers on Facebook from mm-hmm. things they post, um, they run Facebook now runs feeds that have been uh, shown to have to improve psychological states. Mm. So planting seeds of goodness in places we might initially find adversity. So more than just the spirits, we have to embrace the corporations. We have to embrace the politics and and see what we can do there to join without bias. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to just sort of happen miraculously that the corporation is going to wake up one day and say, oh, let's change our ways. You know, people are going to have to sort of be in those corporations who would have such, you know, intentions. Anybody ever go to the Bioneers conference? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's such a cool thing. And at the end of the conference or at a certain stage, they, pl- they have this big, long list that scrolls down the screen of all these amazing organizations in the world that are doing all these amazing things that you know, we've never heard of. But there's really a lot of cool stuff happening uh, in the world. And, and so I guess uh, it's a great point you're making. It's not like you know we're just going to have more and more people sitting around in the lotus posture experiencing samadhi and everything's going to change. I think that all kinds of organizations and efforts and individuals within existing organizations are are going to just be getting more and more and more active and you know helping to change things. Kristen? This sort of just came up to share when you initially asked your question. It's stirring things. This just, is Kristen Kirk, by the way. She'll be speaking uh, up in San Rafael on tomorrow night. I just wanted to just simply say in terms of that waking up and recognizing that you're not separate from anything else, then you care about everything on the outside the way you care about everything on the inside so that in terms of that movement of an awake world, right, all of these things would be happening because there wouldn't be separation from you in a corporation. There wouldn't be separation from you in the health of the water. There wouldn't be separation from anything and so that the you know i had never thought about well what what if what if we all rest in that your question because that's also where the power is because we are all that truth and to rest in the power of that openness and wonder and creativity and positivity feels like it totally helps support that come into fruition so in other words if you're really genuinely feeling one with everything then you know, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me, as Jesus said. You you feel, you know, if if the environment is being decimated in some way, or animals animals are being mistreated, or anything is happening, it's it's happening to you. It's not just happening to something that's separate from you. Exactly, and yeah. you feel it that way, and you recognize it that way. Right, you feel it. So I really appreciate you having me here, and it's it's been a joy to talk to you. I feel like I've kind of over the course of the evening some sometimes gotten pretty clear sometimes got had a hard time really articulating what i was trying to say and sort of zooming in and out as i went along but you know i'm a work in progress and and my thinking about all these things is definitely a work in progress which i'll continue the rest of my life undoubtedly and but i just love exploring 
all these sorts of thoughts and ideas and trying to get more and more clear about them and and not only in terms of individual evolution and enlightenment but in terms of the planetary implications because I think that that's really important and I think there are definitely implications it's not just a sometimes people accuse spiritual people of just being self-indulgent or narcissistic or something like that it's all about me 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 but I, I think that a true spirituality is as relevant to the the world as it is to the individual who is exploring it and uh, I think we're all in a position to really have an influence and so we really want to maximize that and you know make hay while the sun shines mm-hmm. <laughs> thank so oh thanks Ken yeah I really enjoyed it <clears throat>